Hello, Sarah. Hi, Josh. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. I hear you've got some news for us. Well, as we speak, as we start out belabored episode five with our traditional five-week running opening news roundup, (laughs) workers are heading out on strike in St. Louis in the fast food industry. This continues a wave of fast food strikes that we've seen from New York in November to New York and Chicago last month, now to St. Louis, where organizers are expecting over 100 workers from several fast food chains out starting Wednesday night and Thursday morning for most. There was a smaller group of workers who went out on strike early Wednesday morning because they say they were made to hold signs up at work saying ways in which they had not lived up to their boss's expectation. Literally signs that said things like, I took more than 13 seconds to work at the drive through window on someone's order. In my piece on this first salon, one of the questions I looked at is this strategy of going after all of the big companies in an industry rather than just one. There are real drawbacks to that. There are reasons that unions often pick one company, a Hyatt or a Walmart, to beat up on. When you go after everyone in the industry... There's a risk of diluting your ability to organize, your organizing resources, diluting the public pressure, that if the message to the public is this whole industry is screwed up, that people may be less likely to punish individual companies, companies may be less afraid, less likely to cave if they're not being singled out. On the other hand, the advantage of going after everybody in the industry is it does allow you to get a different level of public attention, it allows you to marshal a different level of public support potentially, And it creates an opportunity for one company that may be the weakest link to try to peel off and get some kind of competitive advantage by being the first one to cave and make a deal. We'll see whether or not that strategy pays off and we'll see how far these strikes can spread. Well, especially because we've got different restaurants in different parts of the country, right? So in St. Louis, isn't one of them is Jimmy John's, right? Yep. Yeah. So you've got rest, fast food restaurants that the rest of us aren't familiar with because we don't live in that part of the country. In any case, um, obviously, we'll have more on that. Um, so today, also, and as you all maybe know by now, we're secretly recording on Wednesday. What? Um, <laughs> so today also a new report came out from Demos from our friend Amy Traub on a different population of low-wage workers that is actually larger than Walmart and McDonald's combined. Um, and these are the reports titled Underwriting Bad Jobs, and it is about nearly 2 million workers who work for various companies that are in one way or another subsidized by our federal tax dollars. Um, So these are companies that have government contracts of one type or another, are supported by small business association loans, um, working on federal construction grants paid by um, federal health care dollars, and or maintaining buildings that are leased by the U.S. government. Again, these are people who are working for under $12 an hour, many of them, again, in major cities where $12 an hour doesn't get you very far. And the difference between them and, well, actually, no, Walmart and fast food are pretty much getting subsidized by our tax dollars as well through um, food stamps and other safety net programs. But in this case, in addition to probably being subsidized by food stamps and other um, social safety net programs, these companies are being subsidized directly by the federal government. And... 
that's, again, that's nearly 2 million private sector workers. That's just federal funding. So this is also going to be a problem for people who are getting, for instance, state and city funding. Um, we had a big controversy over that in New York fairly recently when the company Fresh Direct um, got some $29 million in New York City funding. Um, they pay their workers about $8 an hour. So... It's good to see people looking into this. There were members of Congress, including um, House Progressive Caucus leader Keith Ellison, um, at the press conference this morning. And so we will no doubt have much more on this soon. Last week, NLRB election nerds will note that we saw the largest National Labor Relations Board election since 1941. This was a rerun of the previous stab at the largest NLRB election. In both cases, it was an election between two unions, SEIU, the Service Employees International Union, and the National Union of Healthcare Workers, a breakaway union that was born out of a fight within SEIU about that union's direction in healthcare and has teamed up with the California Nurses Association. The result was similar numerically to the first time in that SEIU beat NUHW slash CNA about three to two. As you might expect, SEIU came out of this saying that, in their words, these other unions were attacking union members and should move on. NUHW responded to the election's results by again alleging collusion between Kaiser and SEIU. That kind of collusion was the grounds on which the election was overturned the first time, and NUHW argues that the incumbent union and the company teamed up to create the appearance that NUHW, where it did legally represent workers, couldn't win anything. Aside from the allegations that go back and forth, though, that fight is a face of a much larger set of questions, a much larger struggle about the direction of the labor movement. Part of what was at stake in that fight and will be in the future, as the parties involved continue to fight each other and fight in other ways, part of what's at stake is the question of the labor management partnership agreement between unions, particularly anchored by SEIU and Kaiser, this mammoth healthcare company in California. That agreement has historically been touted by labor as an example of labor and management working together. It's become much more controversial in recent years around issues like the concessions that have been made to Kaiser, and an issue that I reported on for in, the, in these times, the role of SEIU UHW, the incumbent, in proposing that labor stay neutral on a proposal by the hospital industry to weaken nursing patients' ratios in the state of California. And finally, or not finally at all, um, this week, I'm paying attention to and we'll have a report out next week on a story about the port truck drivers in Savannah, Georgia. Um, I used to live near Savannah, and so hearing any stories of any organizing going on in that part of the South always warms my heart a little bit. Um, this is part of a national campaign by the Teamsters and Labor Federation Change to Win, um, called Justice for Port Drivers. And it's estimated that some like 90% of port truck drivers around the country are misclassified as independent contractors, which we've mentioned briefly on the show before, leaves them with no protections under labor law, no benefits, no really nothing. And this is a problem not just for port truck drivers, but for workers around the country. This campaign aims to put pressure on 
politicians to change the law, to crack down on the misclassification of workers. Um, and also they're looking for ways to actually organize these workers, which again, it's tough. Georgia is a so-called right to work state. Um, and these workers, as we said, have no protections under labor law, the way they're currently classified. In addition, though, they have some leverage in that Savannah is a huge port. Some $14 billion in freight come through there annually. Um, there is a massive, massive, massive Walmart distribution center nearby in Statesboro, Georgia. And so the threat of shutting down ports is, is always a uh, real possibility that scares crap out of some of these companies. Um, they're having a, so the Teamsters and Change to Win are holding a worker forum with some of these workers on June 1st that will have um, clergy, elected officials, listening to the stories of some of these port truck drivers. So um, we will have more on that then, I'm sure. We'll be watching. So shortly, later in the episode, we'll be talking about our very new and yet long long awaited <laughs> more than four year awaited commerce secretary nominee penny pritzker who you may remember from last week's episode of belabored but before that we are going to talk about an exciting new article from belabored's own sarah jaffe about an innovative bargaining approach being taken by an SEIU local in Oregon around the issue of the big banks and the consequences of big bank malfeasance on public sector workers and other people who live and breathe in the state of Oregon and elsewhere. So Sarah, how did you come to this story and what should our listeners know about it? So I first heard about this story from Stephen Lerner, who's a former organizer of the Architect of the Jobs of Justice campaign, and somebody who's been advocating this kind of, um, this tactic for a while. And so he's been working with this particular, it's um, SEIU Local 503. Um, they represent about 5,500 or 55,000 public employees in the state of Oregon, and some 48,000 of those workers are in collective bargaining with the state right now. So they have five bargaining tables happening at the same time. And what they're doing is they've written proposals um, to get the state's money back from the big banks. So they have a proposal calling for the governor to sue um, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, other banks that were involved in um, rigging LIBOR, which is a mass and um, it's an interest rate that other interest rates are based off of. Um, and big banks, including J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, Citigroup, and many international banks, are basically set this rate every day. And they were setting it at times too low, at times too high, um, manipulating anybody whose interest rate is based on this interest rate. I'm sorry, this is complicated. Um, manipulating those interest rates so people were losing money or making money in essence, fraudulently. Um, these banks have admitted to wrongdoing, but so far, states like Oregon have not really done much to get their money back. Um, and according to a report issued by Local 503, um, the state of Oregon has lost $110 million alone to LIBOR rigging. Um, they're also calling for a task force that would include workers, um, public workers, workers who have lost their um, homes to foreclosure, workers who have faced other problems because of bank malfeasance to investigate other ways that the state can get its money back from the banks. 
And is it legal to bring these proposals into the collective bargaining process? So far, um, yes. The The question of whether it's legal, um, yes. Now, whether it will get into the contract is another question that we don't know yet. Um, but they are ratcheting up public pressure. They um, had a launch event on Friday unveiling their report and pulling out support from other unions, from community groups, um, student groups, because everybody has been affected by this crisis, right? We all know that the financial crisis has screwed up our finances in all sorts of interesting ways. So along with labor, you've done a great deal of reporting about the big banks and the consequences (laughs) of the big bank hijinks for the rest of us. How do you see the connection between that set of stories, that set of scandals, and (laughs) what we tend to think of in the United States or what get talked about in U.S. media as so-called labor issues? So here's the thing, right? We have seen since the financial crash, we have seen constant attacks on public sector workers specifically as being greedy, as being the reason that state budgets aren't balancing, um, as being the reason that there is no money for public services. Um, when in actual fact, these state budgets were balanced in the case of Oregon. They, they, had, they have a two-year budget cycle. Um, their 2007, 2007 to 2009 budget was balanced, and then the financial sector exploded, and tax revenues bottomed out in those two years, right? Because suddenly um, your home is not worth what you thought it was worth. You don't have a job anymore. You're not paying taxes. Um, it's not that the home the you know home care workers who make ten dollars and change an hour and haven't had a raise now since two thousand and seven are making too much money. It's that the banks exploded the economy and your tax revenues disappeared um and so that's a very intimate connection, right that not only are these workers in many cases actually suffering the consequences of foreclosure um of layoffs. But they're being blamed for it publicly by people like Scott Walker, people like um, Chris Christie in New Jersey. Um, They're really by Republican state representatives in Oregon. And also, the, the really interesting thing about this, though, I think, is that it's using collective bargaining directly to take on a, a sort of common good issue, right? That it would be good for all of Oregon if the money from the banks came back to the state. It would be good for all of Oregon if the big banks were pressured to not get away with this kind of behavior anymore. Um, That this is not just an issue that would get more money in the pockets of these workers that would keep them from getting pension cuts. In fact, um, Heather Conroy, who's the executive director of the local, pointed out that the workers are really behind this issue, even though this may not mean that they get a better deal personally in this contract. But that if this language gets into the contract, the future would be better for the entire state, and that would include all of them. So where else do we see examples of unions taking a a broad approach to what belongs at the collective bargaining table and more broadly in the negotiations fight? So we've seen unions taking the lead on sort of pressuring the financial sector, right? Um, The National Nurses United have been leading the fight for um, a financial transactions tax for a while. Um, But really, the the sort of gold standard for making your labor fight about the entire community was still the Chicago Teachers Union, which we've talked about in 
Belabored episode one. Belabored ex- episode one. Um, that despite the fact that legally the Chicago teachers were not allowed to bargain over anything other than their wages and working conditions, they managed to make their campaign about much more. And so people were very aware that they were striking because their students didn't have textbooks or because there was no air conditioning in the schools. Um, and they were supported because of that. Um, but this is really the first case of, as far as we know somebody really bringing these specific issues into the bargaining room. And what kind of relationship do you see between the breadth of what the union proposes in negotiations and the breadth of the union's role in the workplace, the union's role in the neighborhood, the union's role in the community more broadly? Actually, because we're about to talk about Penny Pritzker, I talked about this in in a piece that I wrote about Penny Pritzker's nomination is that that unions are the only organized and resourced voice for the working class broadly. Um, And that sounds real Marxist and I don't really care um, because it's true. (laughs) And also, well, because I am. But, you know, um, that labor is the only... It's not an interest group, right? That's, That's the wrong way to think of it. That this really is the only voice that working people have. And... Unions are most popular when they recognize this fact and when they act in the interest of not not narrowly their own members. Um, that's when you open yourself up to tar- um, to attacks on being selfish and greedy and all of that jazz. But when people in the community who don't have a union recognize that the union is a good thing for the community, those people support unions. Those people want their own union. And they and they have a voice, right? That you know, we talk about the the money that unions spend in elections. We talk about the um, get out the vote efforts that unions do. We talk about all of this. But what we really need to see more of is your average person who doesn't have a union, because that is the vast majority of this country. Your average person feeling a connection to organized labor, um, and if unions can do more projects, more things, more outreach, more campaigns, more collective bargaining that makes the average person realize once again that that labor is there for them. That is one of the keys to, as we obsessively talk about, revitalizing the labor movement. Check out the article at The American Prospect online. Fight the man when you ain't got no plan. How you gonna live your life when your ass won't fight? Don't say what you don't like if you just let shit pass back. Don't say that you are radical if you ain't about that life. Rebel against them if they try to take your right. And so, because I just mentioned Penny Pritzker, and because. <laughs> what a transition. I, you know, um, she's everywhere. Um, and because Penny Pritzker has so much to do with um, the financial crisis. It's Penny Pritzker's world, and we're just living in it. Oh, God, that's so depressing. That's so depressing. Um, but, yeah, because it is worth pointing out that aside from being on the board of Hyatt, Penny Pritzker was also, um, well, she's on the board of a lot of things. But she was also deeply involved in a bank that um, pioneered a little thing you might have heard of called subprime mortgages. Um, that bank, which blew up in back in way back in two thousand one, um, called Superior Bank, um, yeah, was really one of the <laughs> institutions that started this whole mess. 
$430 million or so dollar settlement, right? Oh, yes, and but they wouldn't admit any wrongdoing. And Penny just said, um, Rick Perlstein has a great piece on this up at The Nation. Um, he says that her response was something like, we're not going to litigate with the government at a time like this, meaning, of course, it was 2001. It was shortly after um, 9-11. So Penny Pritzker had to settle so that the terrorists wouldn't win. Yes, something like that. So the Pritzker nomination is of interest to us here at Belabored for several reasons. Last week on episode four, still available online for the same price. (laughs) It's free. (laughs) Last week we talked to Kathy Youngblood, who is running for a seat, running in the sense that she's running around the country publicly campaigning with Unite Here, my former employer, the hotel union, on the platform that she or someone else who's a Hyatt worker should have a seat on Hyatt's board. The Pritzker nomination, along with the issues, the New York Times has documented what one reporter called the pioneering role that the Pritzker family played in finding ways not to pay taxes. (laughs) There are the subprime issues. There's the Pritzker family's involvement in credit checks, including, for a long period of time, pre-employment credit checks. Then there... Classy. Classy indeed. Then there are the labor disputes that Penny Pritzker has been involved in, including her role on the Chicago Board of Education, where she was an ally of Rahm Emanuel in his fight that many saw as an attempt to break effectively the Chicago Teachers Union or end its militancy, and her role on the board of Hyatt Hotels, Hyatt has been credibly alleged by workers and by Unite Here to be involved in a range of tactics, legal and illegal, designed to stop workers from organizing. Let's talk about the heat lamps for a second, shall we? They turned on heat lamps when workers went out on strike. Workers in Chicago. Um, Also, in an interesting little side note, um, the Chicago School Board and the Hyatt Board thing... um, issues come together for Penny Pritzker in a very interesting way, which is that um, there is, again, this is from Rick Perlstein's piece up at The Nation, there is a fund in Chicago for basically subsidizing developments. Actually, this sort of ties to the Demos report as well. Um, Only connect. Everything. Uh, So this fund is giving some $5 million to help build a new Hyatt. Meanwhile, Pearlstein points out that that money could be used to help keep some of those schools that Chicago, um, that we spoke about with Karen Lewis, um, that Chicago is trying to close open. Um, but the school board has noticeably had no interest in spending any of that money on schools. I'm starting to think that to truly appreciate any one episode of Belabored, I have to listen to all the episodes of Belabored. Weird, huh? So... The question of Penny Pritzker is also a question of the strikingly anti-union, in many respects, cabinet that the president has assembled. Penny Pritzker will not be lonely in coming to the White House after working for a company that had some ugly relations with labor, organized and otherwise. She'll be there with Jack Lew, who, after serving as the head of the Office of Management and Budget in the Clinton administration and before serving at Citibank, then as OMB head for Obama, then as chief of staff for Obama, and now as treasury secretary, was at New York University, which you may think of as a nice way of giving back. (laughs) Giving back debt to its students. 
working as COO at NYU is where Jack Lew had his most personal experience with union busting. In fact, he, as, as COO, as I've reported it in these times and at Salon, was a key figure in the successful, unfortunately, campaign by NYU to break the grad student union, an affiliate of the UAW, at NYU. In fact, under Lou, the administration took advantage of the Bush administration appointees' reversal of Clinton administration appointees' ruling at the National Labor Relations Board on the question of whether grad students are workers who have the right to bargain collectively. There were even immigrant workers who argued while Lou was there that by threatening to punish them for going out on strike, the administration was effectively threatening them with being deported out of the country. So you have Jack Lew, you have Penny Pritzker, you have Sylvia Matthews Burwell, who came to run OMB, Jack Lew's old job, after being the head of the Walmart Foundation. As Lee Fong and I reported at The Nation, the Walmart Foundation plays a key role through giving out so-called charitable donations in paving the way for Walmart to build more Walmarts, in helping to protect Walmart's image at the same time that Walmart is under attack for its labor policies and all kinds of other scandals. It plays a role in isolating workers who are calling for Walmart to change. It plays a role as well in donating to organizations like civil rights groups that one might have expected otherwise to be louder in criticizing Walmart. And then we're also talking about a Democratic president of the United States who, along with these cabinet appointments, had appointed not one or two, but three people, including one of his former commerce secretaries from Boeing, at the same time that his NLRB was being attacked for its investigation of Boeing over the head of the company telling a reporter that workers going out on strike was one of the things that was taken into consideration in deciding not to expand where the company had been based in Washington State, but instead to build in South Carolina, something that was talked about a great deal by Republicans in which Obama noticeably avoided taking a stance on. In fact, when he was asked about it, he said that he wasn't going to get into the details, but that companies do need to have the flexibility to move. He could have said that he wasn't going to go into the details, but workers do need to have the right to go on strike without being retaliated against. Yeah, well, you know. I mean, this is, and this is a, a president, as Josh said, a Democratic president of the United States who was elected with a lot of labor's money and a lot of labor's sweat. Um, I pointed out in the piece that I wrote about this that Kathy Youngblood, who we interviewed last week, um, the first time I talked to Kathy was in October of 2012, and she was out using her time off to campaign for the president. Um, but she doesn't have millions of dollars to donate and millions of rich friends to get to bundle, you know, three quarters of a billion dollars like Penny Pritzker did her first time around for the president. She just has her time and her effort, and she put that in to help elect the president, and so did a lot of union workers. And I've pointed out in the past that really, like, when you start to argue that labor puts in a, an equal amount of money to some of these rich donors, it's completely laughable, right? The money is just extraordinarily um, coming from the wrong side. But what labor does is run a field operation, get runs, get out the vote, and does that very effectively. 
And in places like Ohio, which was a very important swing state where the governor had very publicly attacked unions um, and where the unions fought back and won, they managed to overturn his um, Kasich's anti-collective bargaining bill with a voter referendum. In these states, labor was the deciding factor to keep Obama in the White House. And yet we're getting a cabinet where the people who were on the cabinet, as people have pointed out, engage in many of the same practices that Obama was criticizing Mitt Romney for on the campaign trail. Um, Obama struck a notably uh, populist tone on the campaign trail, talking about wealth, talking about income inequality, talking about all of these issues. And we see very little of that in the people that he's appointing to office. And we see very little of that in the actual proposals that he's made since his reelection. Um, we haven't talked really about the proposal to cut Social Security benefits, but that is coming from the president. That's not coming from Republicans. That's an offer, a concession that the president has offered to make the cost of living adjustments for Social Security. Um, they call it chain CPI. It's a total scam, and we'll have to talk about that more later. But this brings us to this question, again, of what is the relationship between the labor movement and the Democratic Party, and what should it be? That's right. And it's worth noting that if you want to understand why does the president appoint these people, well, you can look at the various relationships between capital and the Democratic Party, between these individuals in the Democratic Party and Obama. But it's also worth keeping in mind that he has not suffered much of a penalty for it. In fact, the nominations that we're talking about have generally not been blasted by even the unions that have intimate knowledge of the labor strife, in some cases the union busting that we're talking about. And we see this bind that labor finds itself in, I've written about this for the nation, where you have labor going all out in 2012 to re-elect Obama, not for some kind of great bounty, but as a bulwark against attacks from Republicans who can reasonably be expected to be worse. There are questions that are difficult, and then there are questions that should be easier. For example, the fact that in the lead-up to the election, major unions donated millions of dollars to Democratic super PACs that would distribute money among Senate candidates based on who the elite in the Democratic Party thought needed the money most, that is not something that should be a hard question. Whether unions optimize their leverage by giving away money to outsiders who are explicitly devoted to getting as many Democratic senators as possible rather than spending money on, A, candidates who labor has concluded are worth rewarding rather than punishing, and B, using the money where it will be most effective in terms of having a ground game. That should be an easy call, and yet it's a call that continues to get made in the direction of doing what the Democratic Party would like unions to do, which is give a blank check, then there are thornier questions, and there are questions that we're going to continue to wrestle with on this podcast. Right. I don't think that either Josh or I would argue that there are absolutely no Democrats that labor should ever support. Um, I've written about Sherrod Brown's role in the fight in Ohio, for instance, um, and we've talked a little bit and we'll, I'm sure, talk more about Elizabeth Warren, who just today, I did not have time to actually watch the YouTube video, sadly, but was apparently grilling somebody about quote-unquote free trade policy. Um, and the question of endorsing the presidential candidate is a lot harder. Um, this I don't have easy answers for, but we also, I don't think anybody would say that 
Labour's relationship with the Democratic Party as it stands right now is healthy. I expect there may be more on this in the next few episodes of Belabor. Or, you know, the next lifetime. <laughs> For your lifetime membership of Belabor, please like us on iTunes and leave a review. Let's be honest, we're all fed up. I could care less about an overhyped election. If it ain't gonna put a country in the right direction, Republican or Democrat, real talk who gives a crap a big soap opera. So this brings us to the end of the podcast. You know, Sarah, what are our friends at ProPublica up to these days? Our friends at ProPublica are up to, well, many things. But one of them is an investigation into the conditions of intern labor. Um, and they are asking for help. So if you have ever been an intern, paid, unpaid, or whatever, um, check out ProPublica.org and give them some information. Help them out with their, um, their investigation. Please do. Also, feel free to tweet your thoughts on this or anything to either of us, to Descent Mag, using the belabored hashtag. And as we close, our final segment, longtime five-week listeners will remember, is ARG! I wish I had written that. Sarah, what are you overcome to the point of being incapacitated with jealousy about not having ridden yourself over the past week. I am simply incapacitated with jealousy um, of Sheila Bappett at RH Reality Check, who's been doing a great job and is actually working on a book on the subject of covering um, the domestic workers movement. Did we just break the news that she's working on a book on this topic? I don't know. Must credit belabored. (laughs) And so... She's been doing a great job, as I've said, of covering the domestic workers movement in general, talking about what it means, why it's a feminist issue, among other things. Um, And this week, she's got a particular piece up um, called U.S. Activists Help Global Domestic Workers Movement as the U.S. Government Drags Its Feet. Interestingly, since we were just talking about the U.S. Government dragging its feet on labor issues, um, there is a domestic workers convention treaty that Um, came from the International Labor Organization, that U.S. domestic workers from um, the National Domestic Workers Alliance were involved in creating, but that the U.S. has not signed on for. Um, Several other countries have signed on for it. And this is sadly, as we've noted, not a rare thing for the U.S. to not sign on to international treaties that protect workers or protect human rights generally. Um, But it's... What is interesting is how involved the U.S. domestic workers are within the more traditional labor movement at this point. Um, It's a great piece. All of her work over there is great. Um, That's at rhrealitycheck.org, and we'll have a link at Descent. A piece I'll plug this week is called The Bloodshed Behind Our Cheap Clothes. It's by Kalpona Akhtar, someone we've talked about before on the Belabored podcast, the head of the Bangladesh Center for Worker Solidarity. Kalpona talks in this piece about her experience organizing as a teenager in a garment factory in Bangladesh, her very early experience with the repression that faces workers who attempt to organize there, something that is still not discussed enough in the ongoing media coverage of the awful, awful death toll from the collapse of this factory. The question of workers' ability to be their own monitors, their own labor rights enforcers on the shop floor, and the role that business and the state and Western brands, through complicity or worse, have played in 
allowing workers to be taken out of the process of deciding what is safe and what is just. Kalpona's piece is a must-read. You may have heard of the outlet it's at. It's called CNN.com. And with that, we close episode five. We look forward to joining you for episode six. And many, many episodes after that. Talk to you soon. This life is hard, so hard I must go. Hey, twin, if I cannot, we can't go.